Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome back to another episode of Mormon Discussion. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful to be with you today. Today I want to reach out to listeners of this podcast who are struggling. Uh, perhaps you're angry, perhaps you're frustrated, perhaps you're struggling to, to deal with, with the reality that the church's narrative is changing. And, and maybe you came across the gospel topic essays. Maybe you begin to, maybe a friend came to you and said, hey, if you look at some of these sources, man, some of this stuff's crazy, and you start to look into it, and you begin to go down the rabbit hole. Here's my concern. We, as members of the LDS Church, are really ill-equipped and unprepared to handle faith deconstruction and reconstruction. And that's for lots of reasons. The number one reason, and it kind of goes into lots of things, but it's this idea that we as human beings are really taught to put things together very simply and to come up with, we're just, our, our, it's our nature to try to find answers to questions. And, and Mormonism taught us that all the answers were right there. And so when we wake up one day and we realize that, man, there's just a lot of questions that don't have good answers. And there's a lot of questions that the better, more reasonable, more logical, more valid answer is that the church isn't true really gets us caught up and hung up. And, and today I wanted to spend some time maybe helping you as members of the church who are having a hard time kind of work your way through all of this. And I've gone through it and I'm not, and I'm not claiming to sit up here as the expert who can help everyone. Um, but I would love to try. I'd love to at least put my arm around each of you. And, and validate what you're going through and, and help you, uh, to see how to maybe, maybe make this shift in as safe and as faithful a way as possible. Let me go through a list of things. I'll try to be somewhat quick. I don't want this episode to be super long, but let me go through a list of things. Number one, you gotta let go of certainty. Mormonism has taught us to have certainty. We walk in on fast Sunday and we bear testimony that we know. And we bear testimony of lots of things that we know. In fact, if you listen to testimonies, you'll realize that lots of people use the terms, I am grateful. I'm grateful for the gospel. I'm grateful for, you know, and they'll bear testimony in that way. And I think, I think, and I could be wrong, but I think subliminally, the reason we use that term, I am grateful, is because that person is just not super comfortable with saying I know. But for the most part, lots of testimonies on Fast Sunday are this, I know. And some even go to the extent to say, I know with every fiber of my being. And and I get it. We have truth claims. And in the midst of those truth claims, we are taught from an early age that we've got something the rest of the world doesn't. And shame, you know, so on some level, shame on those who turn it away. And I feel sorry for those who aren't even aware of it. But the reality is that if you're going to make it through a faith crisis, and I don't like that term, 
I'm, I'm learning more and more to get away from that. But if you're going to learn to come through a faith deconstruction and reconstruction, continuing on as a believing member of the church, because you can't go back. One of the things you're going to have to do is let go of the, of the, of the need to have certainty. You're going to have to get comfortable with liking the questions rather than liking the answers. You're going to have to get comfortable with the words, I have hope in, or I have faith in, or I believe. You're, you're going to have to. Because if you, if you demand to hang on to your certainty, I'm telling you, you can't go back to where you were. And that only leaves one conclusion on the table, which is to walk out saying, I'm certain it is not true. And, and I just don't think that's, that's the best answer. I look at people like Richard Giv- uh, Bushman, Richard Bushman and Terrell Givens, uh, Adam Miller, uh, Joe Spencer, uh, guys like that. And I think if you listen to the way they word things, they're also making that very clear that you're just going to have to let go of certainty. That would be my number one thought. Uh, number two, I would separate, I would learn in your head to intellectually separate Facts from conclusions. Facts are things that both sides would agree on. Conclusions are a whole other matter. Conclusions would would be based on someone's bias, someone's rhetoric, someone's perspective and perception, and the way in which they see the evidence adding up. I'll give an example. It's absolutely a fact that Joseph is sealed to Helen Mar Kimball. Now, there's lots of conclusions we can make from that, and some of those are absolutely valid. We could make the idea that Joseph is a sex maniac, and he is just trying to get with any chick he can, young and old, married or unmarried, and he's simply trying to do that out of a lustful heart. We could also make the conclusion that this is completely innocent, that Joseph is sealing himself to Helen Marr, but it is this dynastic sealing. It has nothing to do with intimacy, and it's totally, completely removed from anything sexual in nature and any and it's removed completely from anything that would even even wish to do any kind of harm to Helen Mars psyche or her her life and I think people are gravitated towards both conclusions as well as lots of ideas and conclusions with between those two but again the idea is to be able to discern the difference between a fact and the conclusions and I think we all have to get to a point where we acknowledge the facts and most members aren't even aware of the facts fine we're gonna have to get there but we also can be hesitant and reluctant to proclaim conclusions when when there are other ways to see the facts. And I'm not trying to take an apologist perspective, only to say that both options, you know, both conclusions, or maybe all hundred conclusions, should have a seat at the table. Let people sift through those things. Let them let them read them. Let them study them, and let them make up their own minds. So I would separate facts from conclusions. Number three. If I were someone who was entering or in the midst of of a difficult faith transition, the very, very first thing uh, I would go and read is I would go read up on stages of faith. And I and I I I would base that idea on James Fowler's stages of faith, but that's not where I would go first. Uh, I would go to Google and I would type in John Pauline, P-A-U-L-I-E-N. Stages of faith. And if you type that into Google, what comes up is a PDF. And it's, I don't know, 20 pages long, 30 pages long. It's a quick read. It will very quickly, from a non-Mormon perspective, show you kind of what you're going through. And everybody's going to be a little different, but I think you're going to see lots of truths spoken in this PDF. I would go do that. Because it shows you that you're not alone. It shows you this is not something that just Mormons go through. It shows you 
this this reality that what you're actually doing is progressing in terms of how you interpret, uh, read into, and understand information. That your brain is actually becoming more and more capable of understanding such things, of delving into to complex ideas and grasping them. I would also add that you, in the midst of looking at stages of faith, you're going to need to recognize that there is a tension between religion and reality. And here's what I mean by that. I'm not saying that that religion is unrealistic, but rather the expectations that reality places on you as well as religion. When you're going through a faith transition, and I'm not talking about whether you stay in the church or leave the church. I'm simply talking about this idea of leaving a black and white world, beginning to see shades of color, shades of gray, beginning to handle uh, complex facts, complex ideas, complex experiences, and then also beginning to kind of locate your authority within yourself. And by that, I mean that if you look at your life in earlier days, you would you would likely see yourself as having placed your authority in others, that you trust others who are the authorities and they're the ones you trust to give you truth and to give you information and to give you conclusions and to give you uh, facts and to give you history and to to put into perspective for you because they've already been there. They've already done it. They've already read it. They've already seen it. They've already talked about it. They've already put the work in. And so you listen to them and they give it to you. But as you go through a faith transition, one of the things that happens is you relocate your authority within yourself. You now no longer trust anyone else outside of yourself as an absolute bearer of truth. And now you realize that oftentimes the authorities are even wrong. And so you find it to be a wiser decision to certainly listen and take in information from all those around you. But then the decision is based on this idea that you are your own authority. And that can mean lots of things. It can mean that you are using logic, that you're using reason, that you are using emotion within yourself. It can also mean that you're using the Holy Ghost who is within you. That rather than trust someone outside of you to be speaking by the Holy Ghost, you recognize your own spiritual feelings and your ability to to understand truth. This is important. And there's this tension There's this tension that as you go through this faith transition and you begin to see shades of color and gray and nuance and complexity rather than just black and white us versus them dichotomies. And as you begin to locate your authority within yourself, here's where the tension comes from. Psychology, science, just reality says that what you're going through is both normal and progressive. Again, I'm not talking about conclusions. I'm not saying the person who loses belief and leaves the church is more progressive than those who stay. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying, well, if you just change your belief and you still believe, well, you're better than those. No. I'm saying it's progressive in that it is a developmental movement forward in how we handle as human beings information and how our brains interpret and understand and think about information and experiences. And that is considered normal and it's considered progressive. But but religious faith, religious institutions look at that exact same process and they call it apostasy. They call it losing your way. They call it falling by the wayside. They call it backsliding because you no longer think and reconcile 
information the same way the majority of the group does. And so the group sees you as outside of its box and it feels sorry for you and it pushes for you to get back into the box. And yet you and I both know that you can't do that. So I would recognize that tension. Number four, I would come to grips with how unlikely the restoration is. In other words, I would just lay it all on the table and I would tell you as the listener that the idea that God and Jesus appeared to Joseph Smith in a grove, that Joseph received gold plates, that he translated them first with the spectacles and then he lost 116 pages and then he translates with a seer stone and before he visits with Moroni, he's seeing guardian angels and and that the witnesses saw things and and you know bring him young after Joseph's death becomes prophet and it just to, just to go through the entire history of the church and every fact and detail and experience that happens just come to grips with the fact that it's somewhat illogical it's somewhat unreasonable it's somewhat silly to say or absurd maybe is a better word to say that this just all lines up and it just has to be true the reality is that there are thousands upon thousands of different faiths and denominations out there. Statistically, the chance of our church being the one true church in the midst of all the others, just from that perspective, is slim to none. The The idea of looking at our church specifically and its history and all the details and how they line up and what fits and what doesn't fit, the the likelihood of the church being being what it claims to be is slim to none. And I think we all have to kind of come to terms with that. Now I'm going to pause here and I want to say the exact opposite. That in the midst of coming to grips with how unrealistic it is that the church is true, I would also argue that it is just as unrealistic and illogical to try to make this whole restoration have some kind of narrative where Joseph Smith and the church is a fraud. Where Joseph's a fraud and the church he, he restores allegedly is a fraud. That also doesn't work. For instance, I've said this before, if you, if, if you come up with in your mind a way in which this whole thing works out as a fraud, this, how all these experiences come together, how they all occurred and, and what was going on behind them, you're going to take, and I'll just give one example. You look at Oliver Cowdery. You got to either make the determination that he's in on it or he's duped. Now, if he's duped, you're going to have to explain how he has all these experiences how he leaves and comes back it just it just doesn't feel like some guy who's been duped and then the other argument is that he's in on it right Oliver Cowdery's in on it but then you have to ask yourself why does he throw such a fit with Fanny Elger why is he so bitter and if he's in on it Joseph's excommunicating those who are in on it then left and right right Whitmer's out Martin Harris is out Oliver Cowdery's out uh, all these you know the guys who are closest to him who bore witness of sacred experiences with him, seem to still support him even when they're bitter and angry that the church has distanced itself from them and Joseph has distanced himself from them. And when you start adding up all the things that 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 occurred and who was involved, you just can't come up with a consistent, logical story that has it all working out to be a fraud either. And so what I'm saying is I'm not saying that that the church isn't true and there's just no evidence for it. I'm saying that there's evidence on both sides. There are logical, reasonable reasons 
to take both extreme conclusions. But there are also logical and reasonable reasons to disregard both conclusions as well. And so the moment you come to grips with that, you again, it's part of letting go of this certainty. You just realize that it's messy, that that both answers have some validity. Maybe it's something in between these two. Maybe Joseph screwed up a whole bunch, but maybe also the divine is involved. And that's that's the option I would plead for, that, that history's messy, that some things don't work out, and other things you just you can't explain away. And in the midst of that, to realize that humans are failing left and right, that we as a church have created a narrative and at times even a theology that doesn't have a solid foundation, but that still doesn't mean that all of this can be explained away as some silly fraud. I just don't see it. And so I think when you come to grips that both conclusions are are messy and have lots of pieces and parts that are unreasonable and illogical, you can kind of begin to see that you're just going to have to let go of trying to get to the bottom of it. And I think that's crucial for those who are going through this who want to move on. And I don't mean move on as leaving. I don't mean move on as just forgetting they ever read any of the stuff or dealt with it, but move on in the sense that you move away from the angst and tension that you're feeling. The next one I would say is let go of the box. Your ward members, your family members, maybe even your spouse or your parents, they're going to try and push you to get back in the box. But you can't. You can't go back. You can't go back to where things were simple and and easily fit together, where things just so easily make sense. It it, You just can't go back to that. And yet 80% of people around you on some level, and some are better than others, but on some level they're all going to say, hey, look, your new perspective is making me uncomfortable and I really need you to do and act and say what is comfortable for me. Because this is my box and I need you to fit in it. Because if you don't fit in my box, you you feel risky to me and I have to be defensive of you. And, and you're going to feel that tension, but I would say let go of the box. Let go of thinking you have to to believe, think, and say the same things that those around you are believing, thinking, and saying. You don't. Let go of the box. Be your own Mormon. Deconstruct it all, reconstruct it back, and keep those things that had value. And if something just absolutely just is impossible to put back into your foundation, then let it go. Now, some things I would say you set aside and you say, this has, this has spiritual importance. I'm going to wait until I have further light and knowledge. But I'm also going to say there are some things that are going to be hurtful and harmful. And you and I both know the moment we see them, they just do not fit. They don't belong. And I'm saying you need to feel empowered to let that go. Let go of the box. You don't have to be a Mormon in any way that someone else expects of you. Be your own Mormon. Make Mormonism whatever you want it to be. And I mean that. And people will give me flack for saying that. Own it. Make it yours. I would also say you need to have a sense of humor. You gotta laugh at the absurdity of Mormonism. I have a, I have a group of friends who are somewhat close in age to me. We've had similar life experiences. We, we have similar ways in which we see and understand and interpret the history and theology of the church. And we get together sometimes and we just, we just riff on Mormonism. And I don't mean riff as in speak evil of it, but we certainly joke around. We have fun. We, we laugh 
at some of the absurdity of Mormonism. There are parts of Mormonism that is absurd. And you got to feel freedom to chuckle at it and not to take it so seriously. I've got a good friend who always says, Hey, Bill, don't take the church so seriously. These guys just don't care enough about what you think and what you say. Don't take it so seriously. And I would echo that, that you have to see the light-sidedness of Mormonism. You have to realize that Mormonism is, in its most absurd moments, hilarious and funny and worth chuckling at and not and not worth getting dead serious over. And try to do that as much as you can. Try to have good people around you who, who you respect and who can provide uh, perspective on, on this transition you're going through and people that you don't have to, you don't have to be something other than yourself that you can, that they won't, they won't judge you or be uncomfortable with you because you're seeing humor in the absurd portions of our faith. I would just feel free to do that. Feel free to, to chuckle and laugh at it. If you knew how much in my personal life I get together with friends and and joke around and chuckle about Mormonism, it honestly is a big part of what allows me to get up the next day and go back at it again. Things we've already talked about, I would feel empowered to deconstruct it. Everybody around you is telling you to pray harder, to read more, to have more faith. And you and I both know that doesn't work. You've already doubled down. You've already tried that. I, I often get apologists who come to me and say, Bill... You're taking the wrong approach. Instead of promoting faith, you're promoting doubt. You are validating people's doubts. And I look back at these apologists and I say, look, help me out here. I want you to find me as many people as you can who have gone through this kind of faith transition, who got back to where they were before, where everything fits so beautifully and they now know again with every fiber of their being and and they just have their certainty back and and they just see the church as this beautiful thing that is just absolutely good in their life and they follow the brethren to a T and and just realize that it was just this moment in their life where they just kind of want to stray for a little bit but but now they've got it back together it, you can't find them there might be a few i think in all my times asking these questions i've had like one person write me back and say hey i'm that guy you say doesn't exist i'm telling you out of the hundreds out of the thousands of people out of the tens of thousands of people and perhaps even the hundreds of thousands of people who are members of the church who have gone through this kind of faith transition, there's there's just not a chunk of them who get back to where they were. It doesn't happen. The, The only way to put this back together is to reframe Mormonism how you feel spiritually impressed and within your mind as you logically think it through to put it together in a way that works for you. Nobody goes back to the way it was. And when I say nobody, sure, there might be three people out there. And those three people, you're welcome to message me. But I know for a fact that pushing people to get back in the old box is so far less successful than encouraging them to move forward and create their own new paradigm, their own framework for Mormonism. And that I know works. So I would feel permission to deconstruct it. I would, when I went through my faith crisis, what worked for me is I just felt empowered at at my lowest point. I said, that's enough. I felt empowered to take it all apart. And so I started looking at issue by issue and saying, look, does this, does this feel right to me? Does this make sense to me? Can I see reason to do this that would be beneficial and good? Do I see reason to stop doing this because it seems harmful and hurtful to me and to others? And I just took every issue apart. And I'd let go of all the peer pressure 
that others were putting on me because now I was locating my authority within myself. And I said, look, I feel free to take it all apart. I'll keep the things that feel right. And then I will feel empowered to put it back together. So not only should you feel, feel the right and responsibility and permission to deconstruct your faith, I would also encourage you to also reconstruct it. Some people deconstruct it all the way. They let go of everything. They let go of their belief in God. They let go of their belief in the church. They let go of their, their belief in Christ. They let it all go and they walk away. I'm hopeful you won't do that. I'm hopeful you'll take time to try and put it back together. I would take things that you think work, things you think you can have belief in and faith in, and, and I would feel encouraged to put it back together. There is nothing that has felt better in this transition to me than when I decided to stop caring about what other people needed me to believe and I took responsibility for picking and choosing my own beliefs and holding them as mine, that they were my truth. It was the ground I stood on. And I hope each of you can get to that point where you feel that. We've talked a little bit about authority. I, I, we need you to recognize, you need to recognize this shift in the location of your authority. Because it now, it now gives you power to speak your truth. It gives you the ability to walk up to the stand on testimony meeting and to put your testimony in your words and not in the words that your culture compels you to use. You now can make up your own mind about gay marriage, about uh, feminist issues, female ordination. It gives you your own right to determine, you know what, the church has never talked about it, but in my home, I'm going to have my wife stand in with me and we're going to give our kids a blessing. The the church teaches us, it shows us, and maybe the church itself doesn't even do it. Maybe it's just the members around you who impose on you this idea that, hey, we all wear white shirts here. And yet you feel empowered to say, you know what, there's no doctrine to this. I'm going to grab my pink shirt and I'm going to rock it at church. The church culture teaches us that, that crosses are bad and maybe you want to throw yours on. It doesn't matter what they are. And I'm not saying you have to pick those issues. I'm saying that you need to feel empowered to stand on your own truth, to stand on your own ground and feel free and feel permission to take that which is good and brings you closer to Christ and to discard that which distances you from the Savior. I would add another point, which is to recognize that as you let go of your your black and white thinking and you begin to kind of comprehend the nuance and complexity that's out there, that you're going to be you're going to begin to kind of come to grips with the idea of the exception to the rule. You're going to begin to grasp the true difference between the spirit of the law and the letter of the law. I remember when I served as a bishop, I walked into a ward council. And uh, and this was in the middle of being bishop. I was in the midst of my faith crisis, but nobody knew that. And I walk into this room, and I just wanted to teach one principle. And I, I asked everybody in the room, I said, hey, raise your hand if you think lying is always wrong. And about half the room raised their hand. And I said, okay. There's a significant number of you who think that. I said, I want to throw a real-life experience at you. I said, you live in Germany. There's a Jewish family that lives nearby, and you like them. You you think highly of them. And they come to you, and they say, look, man, the, the Nazis are going to kill us. Will you hide us in your house? And you say, sure, absolutely. That would be the Christ-like thing to do. And you And you hide them in your attic, and you feed them, and you make sure they have the things they need because that's the right thing to do. 
And then the Germans come to your house one day and knock on your door and you answer it and they say, do you have any Jews in your home? Are you aiding and abetting any Jewish people here? Now you can pick and choose what answer you wish to give. Maybe you just say, look, honesty is important and I'm just going to tell those men that there's Jews in my home and if God wants to protect them, he can. Or if the Germans, if the Germans kill these Jews, then it's, it's on them. It's their fault. It's on their head. It's not on mine. But I'm telling you, I don't live in that world. In my world, sometimes it is absolutely right and okay and justifiable to lie. Let me give you another modern example. Let's say you're in your home, you're sleeping, you you sleep upstairs in your bedroom and your kid's bedroom is down the hall from yours. And all of a sudden you hear someone crash through the door. They have broken into your house and they, and they have come into your home with the intent to do harm. And so you grab your kids out of, out of their room quickly, you put them underneath your bed and you say, guys, be quiet, be quiet, don't say a word. And this guy marches up the stairs with a gun in his hand and he comes to you and gets in your face and says, where are your children? I'm going to take them. And you answer, right? You say something like, hey, you know, they spent the night at their friend's house. They're not here. And you just lied. But again, lying is not always wrong. And so as you go through this faith transition, you're going to begin to realize that there are exceptions to the rule. That with every rule, there are exceptions. And so the church teaches us, and the members around us bear witness of it, that it's important to be obedient. But I would stop that. I would say being obedient in and of itself is not a gospel principle. And people are going to go, but wait a minute, yes it is. And I'm going to say, no. I can be obedient to lots of things. I could be obedient to Lucifer. I could be obedient to a rapist. I could be obedient to a child molester. I could be obedient to... Um, you name it. Pick any evil thing in this world you could be obedient to. Obedience by itself is neither good nor bad. It is not a gospel principle. What is a gospel principle is obedience to the Savior Jesus Christ and to his gospel. And I don't use the word gospel in any way coordinated with the church. The church and the gospel are two completely different things that certainly feed into each other but are not the same entity. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news of Jesus Christ. That he lived, that he died, that he gave his life for us. That we can be changed by his mercy and his grace. That the atonement is a blessing to us. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as you begin to realize that being obedient to Christ and to his gospel are the only two things we truly have to be obedient to then you begin to give yourself permission to seek out the spirit of the law at times rather than the letter. And because you stand on your own truth and your own ground, you have no problem being different in respects to how you live the gospel of Jesus Christ in contrast with all the members around you in the box they decide to push on you. I would encourage you, though, because there is danger in extremes, that you don't get to this place where you think that no rule applies to you that you can do whatever you want, and that that's your right now to do. I would argue that the gospel of Jesus Christ does ask us to place limits on ourselves. It asks us, the majority of the time, to follow the rules. That we each need to be responsible and be worthy of that spiritual intuition within us, which we call the Holy Ghost, to know right from wrong, and to decide when and where we make those exceptions. But again, it is your right. You stand on your truth. I would I would encourage you to build your own framework. We've been talking about that throughout this episode. I would encourage you to build Mormonism how you want to. 
And the doctrine of the church generally gives you that kind of leeway. I'll give one example. Most of Mormonism interprets tithing as 10% of your gross income. But the reality is that the way in which our doctrine is spelled out and the way in which we have interpreted that doctrine historically validates that tithing could be paid on gross income, net income, or even surplus income. And some people will judge me for this, and I say, go for it. It wouldn't be the first time. But in the midst of my faith crisis, I came to terms with this idea that if things stayed the way they were, I was going to have to leave. And I realized that I needed to create room for myself to be able to breathe and exist within Mormonism. And so, for example, with this issue of tithing, I took it to the Lord. I said, Heavenly Father, this is where I'm at. This is where it feels like I'm heading and, and I've got to find some space if you want me to stay. And so on a whole host of issues, I created space for myself in terms of how I define the church being true, in terms of how I see the Book of Mormon and its historicity, in terms of how I see the exclusive claims of the church and what that means to me and what it doesn't versus what others have said it means, in terms of how I look at section 132 or how I grapple with or understand Jesus Christ and his command to to keep the commandments. And as I point out, even with tithing. And so on these host of issues, I've just given myself a right to define them and to create that space how I've wanted to. And with tithing, I've chosen to pay on my surplus. And I'm not recommending that everybody out there go do the same thing. I'm simply saying that you need to realize that the gospel gives you such room. And that on every issue, you have a right to determine what ground you'll hold on that issue. And oftentimes, whatever your decision is, still falls within the parameters of faithfulness. And so, create your own Mormonism. Create your own space. Richard Bushman's done it. Terrell Givens has done it. Adam Miller certainly does it. And a whole host of other Mormons do it. Create your own space. Make it yours. And lastly, if I can finish up, don't let anybody tell you that your Mormonism is less than because it doesn't fit into their expectations of what it should be. People are going to judge. People are going to think things. They're going to say things. People are going to do things that, that try to impose their box on you. Don't let them. Live your life. Find ways that the church can bring you peace and happiness. Find ways that the church can be fun and enjoyable. Find the terms on which you can connect to the divine through the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That's what I've chosen to do. There are lots of things I believe. There are lots of things that I hold to still be true. There's other things that I've let go of, and there's a whole host in between that I have hope in and have faith in. I hope you'll tune in next week, where I'm going to break down my testimony and share with you what ground and space I hold on on the important issues within our faith. And until then, I hope this was helpful. I hope this shares with you how how you can go through this and maintain faith and maintain a ground that keeps you in the church. I'll finish by saying that when I look at the Temple Recommend questions, I have no problem answering them. I feel like there's nothing in my answers or in my feelings about my answers which would cause me not to be able to pass that interview. It's my hope that in each of us, that as we reframe, recalculate, deconstruct, and reconstruct our faith that we too can get to a place 
where while we stand on our ground and hold our own truth, that we still see that God is interacting with the church in some way that makes it special. I bear witness of Christ and of his grace and mercy and pray that the Lord warm your shoulders in this sacred space that you try to hold. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Taking out my issues never here.